Hi, everybody. I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. I just checked, and this is my 51st webinar since March when I came off the road and went into self-quarantine because of the pandemic. Um, I had no idea that when I started, this would be so popular or that I would go on for so long. But it's really thrilling and exciting to have these guests that are so knowledgeable and so willing to share their information with me and with all of you. Um, today, my guest is Yogi Sharp, and he's from the UK, and we're going to be talking about the hoof. And so um, just remember that um, all of these are, are recorded. I'm checking. Yes, we're recording. And they'll be available on my Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. So please tell all your friends that that's where they can find them. And if they subscribe, they'll get a notice every time I put up a new uh, video. Um, so once again, today, my guest is Yogi Sharp. And Yogi, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself because I, honestly, I don't know your background. I just know you currently. Okay. Well, firstly, hello, everyone. Thank you, Wendy, for inviting me to speak today. Um, I'm honored to be amongst such a renowned company, that's for sure. Um, I feel quite humbled by it. Um, yeah, so I'm Yogi Sharp, um, a farrier from the UK, uh, currently studying for my BSc Honours at Myersco College. Um, and I'm the founder of uh, an educational platform, if you like, called the Equine Documentalist. Um, I create um, blogs um, and articles, and basically what I'm trying to do is I noticed that there was a gap between the research that was going on um, and, you know, the, the owners, essentially, the owners and the practitioners. So I wanted to kind of bridge that gap a little bit. So, um, so what I look to do with my educational platform is, is bring that research in a more palatable way, really, for the, for the people on, in the grassroots, if you like. Um, so... I don't consider myself anyone special, really. I just um, have a passion for horse welfare, and, and that's kind of the reason why I decided to create this educational platform. And it kind of just ran away with itself, really. Um, so I'm quite chuffed with that. Um, it's quite daunting sometimes because, you know, there's people out there who are far more um, experienced than myself. Um, but I'm enjoying the process, and if I can help people along the way, that's great. So. So basically, you're collating data and information that exists in the world, but is kind of scattered, and you're pulling it together to make it uh, palatable for the average person to understand. Is that right? So yeah, that's the idea. It's kind of, I create like a digest, if you like. So, um, you know, it's, I pick a subject, and usually it's something that I see is being widely discussed on Facebook or or questions that are being widely asked on Facebook. And then I kind of, I pick that subject and then I go and do the research and I try to put together an article that's as science-based as I can. And obviously there's, there's always going to be certain amounts of my own opinion in there um, because it is impossible to com write a completely unbiased piece. But um, I do my best to, to bring, you know, something that's as, as unbiased as possible and just give people information um, rather than telling people what to do or anything like that really. So um, I have two questions. One, how did you come up with the name documentalist? <laughs> well, so it was, I was playing with words obviously as you do as when you're trying to think up a name for yourself. Um, 
And I realized what I was doing was documenting the research. Um, so a documentalist is somebody who documents stuff. Um, so I am doing my own research as well for my degree, but on the whole, most of my work or most of my articles is, is that I'm documenting what's already out there. So hence the equine documentalist. Yeah. And so I have a master's degree in equine reproductive physiology from the University of Kentucky. Um, so I'm, I'm familiar with experiments and having to go out and do the research to find out the known information before you make a hypothesis and then move forward with a plan. Um, and so it seems to me that that it's you're gathering those papers can be so hard to read some of them absolutely and you, get into the statistics, yeah. you know they're they're just turn your eyes glazed over and you know it's like you fall asleep halfway through the article yeah. uh, because yeah. they're so dry and you know i mean i've i've actually i have 13 publications with my name on it um as a co-author so which i didn't even know until i researched one day but i so i understand <laughs> the process of doing research and um, and it can be so, unless you are used to that type of writing, of reading that type of writing and understanding the, how that format is, it can be very uh, intimidating to the average person who's not used to the scientific method. Well, it's intimidating to me. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm very, I mean, in all honesty, I'm very new to it myself. Um, you know, this is my first degree, um, but I'm that type of person. I'm a very all or nothing person. So I've chucked myself into the research, chucked myself into the books. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's when I start reading them, I have to read them quite a few times um, because like you say, it's, it's very discombobulating a lot of the time. And you think, what, what can I actually take from this? So so yeah, I mean that's and that's part of the reason why I'm doing it because I do realise that it's very difficult for people to to read these papers and, and take what they can from them. Um, and then, like you say, they can be dry. So I do try to, you know, put a story to to the articles if you like um, to try and make them a bit more interesting. Um, but yeah, so that's yeah. But I completely agree. That's part of the reason why the information doesn't get out there because it's yeah, just I, totally so when i first started writing non-scientific papers they were so dry i had to learn how to how to write to, <laughs> to my students you know and that that took a while but i remember that process and um you know when i have to look at a scientific paper i i do the cheat sheet first i go to the summary and oh yeah. The summary oh, and, go, yeah. and what is the conclusion here? And then what was the premise? And then I kind of fill it in between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think anyone who said they didn't do that would probably be lying. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I I do. I've done a fair bit of writing in the past. Not not published. Well, I've had a few poems published, but I enjoy writing anyway. So it's it's. Um, it's a passion of mine anyway. So I've, I've written poetry in the past and such. So writing comes is, is, is a hobby for me anyway. So it's put the two together. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So you have a website, right? Cause somebody's asking where they can find your articles. Yeah. So the blog site is the equine documentalist.com. Um, and there's quite a few articles on there. Now you can just scroll down through them. And then one of the things that I think 
it's important for people to understand when you're looking at a scientific paper that in order to do a study, you have to impose controls because there's so many factors involved. If you didn't impose a control, you, you, either you would have to have thousands of horses or foot, feet or whatever you're studying, or you wouldn't have any, um, you wouldn't have anything at the end. It would be just a mishmash. And so when, when someone's about to do a, any kind of scientific study, the first thing they have to do is narrow the focus of that study and limit the parameters in order to make it something that actually you can come out with a conclusion or hopefully come out with a conclusion and not always. I mean, there's many times yeah. that you don't have a conclusion. And there's also times when statistics can help the conclusion. Um, I've seen that when I was a research scientist that um, it was back in the 90s, they were working on a lot of in vitro stuff and uh, grant money was tied up in results in papers. And so statistics were used to help the conclusion along. Um, and so when you're reading a scientific paper, you always have to take into consideration what was the premise? What are the, the, is the hypothesis? What are the controls imposed? Were they quality controls? Did you have a, a group that was not treated as your control group? And then uh, what are your numbers? So if you had a study with five horses and one horse went lame and you couldn't have it anymore and then another horse, the owner pulled the horse out, you're down to three and you're not gonna come up with any good result. Yeah. And so these are the kinds of things when I'm sure, Yogi, you've come across when you're looking at a scientific paper, you have to not just take it for the words it says, but um, look at the quality of the design, which is really important, um, yeah. whether or not it's been what's called peer reviewed. In other words, peers have looked at the publication, evaluated it, and determined it's of good quality to be published in specific publications. And you can get a paper published anywhere if you find a, you know, anyone who's, someone who's willing to publish it. But to get in these really high quality peer-reviewed magazines and things, you have to have quality work with good controls and good numbers and a clearly defined hypothesis with a logical progression in thinking. Um, and so that's, I'm sure one of the things you're doing is just looking at the quality of the papers that you're evaluating. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very difficult because a lot of the time these things come down to budget and time. Yeah. Um, but um, so you, you do have to be, be careful with how much you take it. You have to take it all with a pinch of salt sometimes because the reality is that most studies these days are done with a handful of horses because it's what's practical. Um, but what, what I tend to do is I don't take a study in isolation. I will always try and find other supporting studies. So if, if there's more than one study saying the same thing um, with you know, similar controls and that kind of thing, then you can start, in my opinion, you can start to say, oh, okay, there's some evidence behind this. You know? um, so, but of course, when, when you're talking about breakthrough stuff, which, um, which my research is quite um, forward thinking, I won't get into it too much, so I have to be careful, but um, it's, it can be really hard to find any studies to, to start with. Um, and you have to, then you have to start looking at studies that were 
unpublished and you have to start looking at experiential opinion and and that kind of thing um but i think the the most important thing is accepting that so don't don't take something that has limitations and say that it hasn't so i don't think there's anything wrong in saying you know this is a theory but it has limitations because of this this and this there is something wrong in saying this is exactly the truth <laughs> without yeah. Without enough evidence, yep. uh, but you know, all, all okay. the studies are, are bite sizes as well. You know, uh, people do bits. So this, someone will do a bit, and then the next study will do a little bit more, and then the next study will do a little bit more, and you start to build a picture. Right, so. and that's why the referencing is so important because if you, and when you look at a paper, you'll see that it's highly referenced in the background information. So there is always a section of what is the known. Uh, body of information prior to this particular experiment. And um, that gives you a good idea of what the work is that has come before and what they have looked at. And I'm sure, Yogi, that you probably have looked at a lot of the older texts. Um, I had Monique on last night and she referred to some German texts. And here was the asymmetry in the foot way, way back when. And for some reason, we, we tend to um, lose certain knowledge that when we kind of go back there and look, we go, oh, it's not new. Somebody already documented it, yeah, yeah, but we've yeah. forgotten it. Well, yeah, I was talking to my friends in my WhatsApp group the other day, actually, and we were, we were saying that there literally is nothing new in the world. So somebody will come up with an idea and somebody's already spoken about it um, and it comes around in, in phases, but then it comes around, I suppose, with a, with a, a deeper knowledge um, and also everybody is restricted by the technology of their day as well so you can start to look at things in with with new technologies and program and get a deep deeper insight um but i mean wendy in all honesty um you know more about this stuff than i do i, I haven't even had a paper published yet so um <laughs> so i'm preaching to the choir slightly <laughs> okay that was a past life i i walked away from that world in 1986. <laughs> That's when I was born. I <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Yeah, so, you know, um, that, but I, you know, I was, uh, I have a master's degree from the University of Kentucky, and I was going to get a doctoral degree either in the navicular bone or in the horse's spine with Dr. James Rooney. He was my oh. advisor on my master's degree. You know, but I looked around and I was like, I, this was already after a horse had fallen on me and broken my hip socket and I finished my oh. master's and you know I looked around and I went I don't want to live in concrete walls I want to be out in the world and so I left science and right. started teaching um, yeah. but I've never left my roots and so in my teaching I you know gravity is the law that's it gravity is the law and you have to adhere to the laws of physics because it's going to kill you if you don't right yeah. or hurt really yeah. badly um, and so it's always been in the back of my mind uh, whenever I'm teaching or somebody tells me something, I'm like, if, if I can't go back and figure out how that works within the known laws of physics, then th there's a problem. Um, and so that's what I'm, I'm, and this is where Surefoot has driven me crazy for eight years because I put horses on foam pads and they totally change. And um, I think that is unique. I, don't, I haven't found any research. There is a patent back when for humans, but not for animals. Um, and so, you know, that's, you know, 
maybe somebody did do that a long time ago. I don't know. But um, it's driving me crazy because I don't have any people go, well, what's the evidence of this? What's the data? And I'm like, there is none. You know, yeah. um, there will be soon. I, I know that it's getting closer. But, you know, as a scientist by training, it's one of the things that kind of that doesn't keep me up at night, but it does kind of nag at me all the time that I'd love to have some kind of data to support what we're seeing in all these horses around the yeah. world. Yeah. Um, but one of these days it'll happen. One of these days. Yeah. Yeah. You have to get back into the science then, won't you? And uh. <laughs> get the <data> done. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I was, yeah. anyway, let's go on here. All right. Okay. So Yogi's got a slide presentation. I'm going to run it. Um, just because of the internet situation, we thought that might be better. And by the way, this background today, this is my front yard. That's my ancient apple tree that's decided it still is going to survive. And there's some beehives way in the background. You can't really see them that are my neighbors. And, um, so they come and pollinate all my flowers. All right, shall I screen share here, Yogi? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. There we go. Cool, perfect. Okay, so yeah, so today I'm going to be talking about a little bit about the connection between the hoof and the body. Uh, now, this is something I'm quite passionate about because I really feel it's important that we realize that we can't or can, we can no longer compartmentalize the two, um, both as farriers and as anyone who, who works with horses. Um, so, yeah, today we're going to be looking at the hoof and the horse connection. So, next slide, please, Wendy. Can you see that? Um, I've got a little bit of a lag, I think. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it may surprise you to hear that um, me as a farrier, when I turn up to a new horse, the first thing I do is actually not look straight down at the feet, um, but I look at the general posture of the animal and its general proportions, because this can tell me a lot about what I can expect to see when I do actually look at the feet. Uh, it also tells me what I may need to do in order to create a more ideal posture. Uh, and obviously this would be the same from in front and from behind the horse as well as this lateral view. Um, so I want to be shooing the horse and not just his feet. And that's, this is something that I'm getting quite passionate about. For instance, if you look at this chap, you can see that his metatarsal is slightly angled um, toward the trunk. So this tells me that I may well see morphological effects on the hind so, hoof. Okay, just tell me which color line and I will draw my arrow over it to highlight. Okay, so if we look at the point of buttock plumb line, the yep. red line, and then we go down um, vertical to the ground and then we can see the metatarsal, which is in orange. Yep. We, in an ideal confirmation that metatarsal would be along that point of buttock plumb line so the horse is slightly camped under yeah okay so so looking at the whole horse i've, I've already noticed that and so I'm, I'm saying okay i may well see morphological effects on the hoof next slide please When we then do look at the digit, we've got some established ideals that we're looking for. Um, so we're looking for a straight hoof past an axis being one of them. And this is directly affected by the ratio between the height of the heel 
and the height of the toe and their angles. So for instance, if we think back to the image I just showed where the horse was camped under behind, I could, depending on how long it had been like it and how strong the hooves are, expect to see that the angle difference between the heel and the toe getting larger with the heel angle getting more acute. So the heel angle is the blue HA. Yep. Uh, this brings us to what I've called the hairline pathway, which is the darker blue line. In this foot, you can see how it's just beginning to drop off at the heels. And you can also see the same in the horn tubules towards the back of the foot, mm. starting to, to roll off. So, um, so though this looks like an okay foot, it is actually starting to prolapse. The heels are starting to prolapse. So the more they prolapse, the more the posture will be affected. So, you, so there we see how the relationship forms between the whole horse assessment and the hoof assessment. So next slide, please, Wendy. Uh, these forces will act the same on a medial lateral plane too. Um, something that Simon Curtis discusses in his books and also Mark Caldwell discusses in his PhD thesis is how the hoof morphs according to the forces that act upon them. So when the gravitational load line from above doesn't bisect the hoof, it will morph according to those forces. So next slide, please, Wendy. And can we just talk about this one for a minute, just to yeah. highlight a few things? Um, yeah. Because um, one of the first things I noticed is, and it may, not, may be a false thing to pay attention to, but it looks like the hairline's following the coronet band line and that we've got a bulge here and then it drops over and the hair is kind of heading in that same direction. Is that correct? Yeah, so I would say that the the medial so the medial is to the right okay over just, here just, Green line. Just, uh, the yeah the medial is to the right of the picture um, and then the medial aspect of the hairline pathway i'd say is slightly um higher than the lateral side um, and yeah you've got a bulge to the coronet band there it actually bulges out and then the medial wall angle is is more upright than the lateral wall angle so so the foot is not completely symmetrical. But a lot of that would be normal because the hind hoof, you know, you do have a medial, a medial side and a lateral side to a hoof. Um, I think um, Monique talked about that, actually. About yes, she did last night. So, yeah, so last night she talked about how you're not looking for perfect symmetry, but you're looking for, to use a non-scientific term, good symmetry. You know, you're looking for um, something within a tolerable um, parameter. Right. So, next slide, please. Yep, it'll just take a second. Are you up? Yeah. Yeah, you? Sorry, Mark, got I've got a lag. Um, so then finally, I will look at the bottom of the hoof. Now, from what I've seen in the previous assessments, I'll expect to see certain shapes and morphologies in this view. So basically what we're looking for here is symmetry and well-formed structures. And I think we're so used to seeing poorly conformed feet that they become an unacceptable norm. And I wrote about that in my recent article about the unacceptable norms of equine management. Um, and I highly advise, well, recommend people read that. Um, now, we often forget what they're meant to look like because we're so used to seeing abnormal. So, for instance, the frog, the central sulcus and the bulbs 
We're so used to seeing contracted frogs, prolapsed bulbs with deep central sulci and thrush that it almost becomes not worth noting. Um, but the reality is that the, the health of the back of the hoof will affect the ratios that we mentioned before, the heel and toe ratios, um, and have a profound effect on posture. So we will, of course, see medial lateral balances from this view as well, um, indicated by the lighter red lines, where we're looking again for symmetry of the two sides of the hoof. But of course, as Monique said, you're, you're not going to get perfect symmetry because the, the, the trunk of the body is onto the medial of the foot. So you're always going to get us the, the um, you're going to have a right foot and a left foot. But poor symmetry can be indicative of poor conformation and or where poor hoof balances influence the posture of the horse. Um, and we also may be able to see these influences by looking at other structures like the white line and the bars. So so this, if you look at the bars, they're nice and straight um, and they, they mirror each other. So very often we see bars that are bent um, and just not in the best shape. Um, and again, that's become an unacceptable norm. But actually, we really familiarise ourselves with what a foot is actually meant to look like. Um, then we're going to start noticing um, the unacceptable norms much, much more. Yeah, it's really... It if we don't have a comparison, we can't make a judgment. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. it, so, so in that ravine, is this a good foot that we're looking yeah, at? Yeah, so I've, I've put this up because it, I consider it a good foot. We've got, we've got a good frog, symmetrical frog, symmetrical lateral grooves, um, just pr pretty much symmetry all round. Um, and then the, importantly, we've got a central sulcus that is a small depression. I'm so used to seeing really deep central sulcuses and with evidence of the frog being contracted. Um, but it's very, very rarely mentioned because, it, like I said, it's become an unacceptable norm. But we have to understand that this is what it's meant to look like. And if it, if it, um, if it looks contracted and that central sulcus looks deep, then we're already down a pathological road. Um, it's hard to read what the uh, light yellow line is, SC? Uh, solar concavity. So, you know, the, the sole is meant to have a, a dome effect. It's meant to, to be able to um, descend under load. And obviously, if you've got a flat sole, it can't descend anymore. So that's just talking about how you're meant to have a concavity to the sole. Sure about that. Um, so somebody's asking, so the bar is the green line or the whitish part, but not the brown bit inside. The bar is this green line here. Yeah, so the bar, the bar is, along, is along the green line. The green line follows the, the bars. So the bars are slightly um, inside of the green lines. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yep. yep. Um, and then you've got the lateral um, clefts, just, uh, just again, just inside those. Right. And the bars are actually a continuation of the hoof wall as it comes forward and in, correct? Yeah, pretty much. They have their own um, germinative layer, um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're meant to be a load-bearing structure, the same as the hoof wall. Yeah. So if you get a bar that's like folding over, is that, what does that indicate? Well, it can indicate lots of stuff, but very often the folding bars or the bending bars will, will correlate with um, contractures or flares. Um, so it's, 
it's telling you about the morphology elsewhere of the, of the foot. Okay, so so when you see something like that, it, what it it's really trying to tell you something. It's not just simply that they're weak or they're or um, that the horse grows excessively in the bars, but really that those are the kinds of things that when we see that, we should be taking that as a as a message as opposed to just going, oh, well, that's my horse. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I think that's what I'm trying to express here is that if it's not the ideal, it's not something that we should nonchalantly, you know, look over. We need to, you know, prevention's better than cure. And if we can start to see these changes um, earlier on and recognize them and appreciate that they shouldn't be that way, then it kind of obligates us to then do something about it. Um, whereas if we say, oh, that's just normal, then it just perpetuates. So that's kind of the, the message that I'm kind of trying to, trying to express here, yeah. Right, yeah, um, last night I told Monique a little story that when I went to Hawaii, all the horses had terrible, scary coats, except for one. And we asked that one, oh, what sorry. Did. Um, I went to Hawaii, hang on, I'll just yep. stop for a second. And I saw all these horses with, with poor coats. They were dry, they were staring, but everybody's horses looked like that. And then one horse arrived and it was shiny and gleamy, right? right. And so yeah. we asked the owner, we said, well, why is your horse different? And she said, because I line my fields because they're on volcanic rock, right? Yeah. But right. everybody else, they were like, what are you talking about? Because it yeah. becomes so normal to them, they didn't see it. Exactly. exactly. That's the problem with not having a, a, a good example. We get so used to looking at it in one way. We just think that's the way it is. Exactly. And, that, and that's, you know, I really do encourage people to read that article that I wrote, Unacceptable Norms of Equine Management, because that's the whole ethos of that article. So, yeah. Yeah. And um, Monique last night talked so much about how our local environment um, the minerals, the soil, all that is really plays into the health of the foot, some yeah. of which we have control over and some of which we don't. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, diet plays a huge role. Um, now, I don't profess to be a nutritionalist. Now, that's something that, um, as a farrier, I do admire of the barefoot trimmers, is that they do have um, much more understanding or they you know, they look to have much more understanding of nutrition. Um, and certainly something that I want to look further into, but, um, I need to find somebody for my webinars that's going to talk about nutrition. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any recommendations? Let me know. Uh, I can't think off the top of my head. I know a few, um, uh, Alicia Harlov, maybe the humble hoof. Oh, okay. I'll make a note. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Ready? I'm pretending like I know loads of barefoot, barefoot trimmers now, but I don't. So um, <laughs> I'm picking from a small, um, but no, Alicia, Alicia is very knowledgeable. Okay. So. Humble hoof. This is how I get more, you know, like I gather more information by doing these. Yeah. 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 Okay. Right. So slide. Yep. Are we on there? Yeah, we are. I've got a lag. Sorry, I've got a lag. So, That's okay. Um, so looking closer at the back of the foot, which again is something I think is often missed, can tell you a lot about how the hoof is morphing. 
So I'm going to be going into much more depth on this in a video cast I'm going to be doing with Wayne Turner from Progressive Equine in the near future. Um, but we'll talk about a little bit about here. Um, and thank you to Lindsay Field, uh, study of the equine hoof, for allowing me to use her image here on the bottom right. Um, so anyway, the point of this is, is that um, the back of the hoof, again, is something that's, that's very much missed. Uh, Daisy Bicking talked about it in a couple of her videos, actually, about um, the proportions of the cartilage versus the digital cushion and stuff. So I recommend people go and have a watch of that. Um, but again, um, the, the morphology that we see of the back of the foot is going to have an effect on the whole body because of the um, effect that it will have on the, on the ratios of the foot. So next slide, please. And so can we talk about these for a second? Yeah, Just of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the one on the left, the black foot, the, the lateral side of the foot is longer, would you say, from the center sulcus to the lateral cartilage versus the medial side? Uh, so if I'm looking at the orange, the one with the orange lines on the bulbs. Yep. That, yeah. Um, so the lateral heel is um, contracted, and that's why it's got the... Um, the wider shoe on it with the boxing. Um, and then you can see that that's pushed the bulb up and into the foot. Um, so that's, again, looking at that, that bulb with that heel can tell you a little bit about what's actually happening to the rest of the foot. Um, and then if you look at um, the bottom left, you can see both heels, uh, both lateral cartilages are almost touching. Um, right. so this is this is a contracted foot and if you look at the at the frog area you can see there's a really deep crevice so you've got you've got thrush going on you've got everything you know being squished up basically um and then if you look at the bottom middle this horse has hardly got any lateral cartilages at all um it's pretty much all digital cushion um and again it's got a very very deep crevice to the frog and then if we look at the picture that i've used um, courtesy of Lindsay Field, um, this foot you can see the imbalance. But then, you, what I liked about it was that you could see the imbalance all the way back up to the bulbs, and you can see if you look at the yellow arrow, arrows, you can see how that foot is beginning to create that very deep crevice where it's starting to contract. So that's why I put that one in there. Yeah. So, so anytime we see that that center sulcus on that frog is getting deeper, we Basically, that is a, you know, a red light flashing. Yeah, I mean, it could either, it could be purely um, thrush um, and a management issue, or it could be telling you that your, your foot is starting to contract. So, you know, everything's, everything still takes experience. I can't give you, um, like, right. one for everything, but um, because it still takes experience to recognize what you're seeing. But... You know, if, if, you're, if you are seeing that, then, you know, we should be, say, we should be mentioning it to the, to the professionals that need to be um, spoken to. Oops, sorry about that. Okay. Um, yeah. Next slide. Yep, the horse skeleton, right? That's the one. Yep. Yeah, perfect. Get us out of the so way going back to our whole horse body assessment, we can take a brief look at what the ideal is from a farrow-related view. Um, so the front leg is designed to be a weight-bearing structure, 
So it should have a column-like conformation and much of its dampening system above the hoof is from its muscular attachment, where as the hinds have a concertina effect, which allows them to provide propulsive power and allows the reciprocal apparatus to function the way that it does. Now, every horse will have biological variation, obviously. So they're gonna have different length bones, they're gonna have different angles to their joints. But something that I've been looking at um, and that's been emerging in, in studies as an ideal, as some studies by some, well, some experiential opinion by Judith Shoemaker and some studies by Karen Gelman, which are um, hope, hopefully they'll be published soon, they're unpublished at the moment, but they're in very interesting studies, is the, uh, they've been talking about the ideal of a vertical metatarsal. So when they're in this orientation, as in vertical, so the metatarsal obviously are in green, um, they are counteracting gravity efficiently and bearing load in pure compression, as bones are you know, designed to do. Um, now, the studies that I mentioned, they go into some very technical physics on this. Um, but for me, I've noticed in my work that non-vertical metatarsals are almost always associated with pathology and poor hoof morphology. So that's something for me that I think we should be looking at. So again, a, an indicator to start looking deeper because it's telling you something's going on. Yeah, I, I, th I think it is. And, and again, you know, this is, you know, I'm, I, I'm not going to pretend that this is proven because, you know, like, as we were talking about before, but this is something that is starting to be looked into and starting to be researched. Um, and, you know, we have, we have in the textbooks things saying that Camp Thunder is a confirmation. Um, right. But I think that's going to that's gonna start to be questioned um, as a, well, Gelman, Karen, and, um, Karen and Gelman actually call it a um, abnormal compensatory posture. Um, and it's something that I'm talking about in my research as, as an antalgic posture. Um, so away from pain. Um, but again, this is, this is not proven yet. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm saying this as, as an idea, as, an, as a discussion to have. Um, yeah, but, um, but yeah, I think we need to question non-vertical metatarsals and, and obviously that usually corresponds with a camped under posture. Well, what I, I like about that as an idea is it's something simple that, you know, as it proves out, people can look at a picture of their horse and draw a line. Absolutely. And, you know, so much of, uh, like, I absolutely love Monique's lecture last night and I, it, it was, it's very deep. And so when we pull back to the average person who wants to be able to look at their horse and do right by their horse, to have some simple evaluations um, that don't require equipment and force plates and angle measuring and x-rays, just to get us started so that we can ask those questions of our veterinarian and our farrier and go, I've noticed this, what do you think? So conversation yeah. starters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not, you know, I'm not telling people to diagnose anything from the fact that their horse has got non-vertical metatarsals. Um, and, and, and the other thing to consider here is that posture currently is a very subjective subject. <laughs> so, um, so we have to remember that. Um, now, being able to quantify posture would obviously be a wonderful thing and something that I'm possibly looking into. But, um, 
you know, we, we it's, there's, why, there's lots of studies in the human to show that, you know, people have antalgic postures and they have compensatory postures to, to certain pathologies. So, you know, so why would it not be the same in the horse? Um, and so we need to, I think we do need to, to take a look at, you know, the general, that's why I was talking about the first thing I look at is, is the whole horse. You know, is it, is it telling me by its body language that I'm hurting um, or that there could be issues? Um, because I think we can tell a lot from the, the general demeanor and the posture of the horse. Well, and the thing with horses and humans, and probably most mammals, is that we start to compensate before we ever acknowledge that there's something wrong. Absolutely. And the quicker we can uh, see the compensation or recognize the compensation, the quicker we can get back onto the road to recovery. But, you know, that's, we're designed to compensate. Yeah. Um, I don't know a horseback rider that isn't compensating for something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then obviously that will transfer to the horse when Absolutely. they're riding. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, and uh, talking about that, actually, this is the reason why um, I tend to, this is going to be another controversial uh, statement, I imagine, but um, I like to look at these horses with thermography. Uh, now, thermography has to be done in a clinical way, otherwise it's essentially useless. So I will make sure that I make that clear. Uh, it has to be done with the correct protocols. But as you were saying before, we make compensations way before we've got structural changes. Um, and, and thermography, for me, is able to pick up those early indications of physiological dysfunction. So I, I, I like to look at these horses with thermography um, to see if we can pick up early, early stages of, of issues. Right. And, and with thermography, so just so you know that I have a, a very little experience with it, um, in 99, Dr. Joyce Harmon and I took a thermography camera to Africa and we went to saddle fit an elephant. <laughs> right. I, I swear to God. And um, she brought her computer pad, her pressure pad to measure the pressures under the saddle, but that technology failed. We fried the uh, power charger for the thermography camera, but they were managing, they hijacked it. And um, we did see the, you know, the pattern on the elephant that we were attempting to saddle fit. It, it is all fabulous for finding animals at night in Africa, okay? Just so you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but calibration is the absolute key. Um, having somebody who is ethical using that kind of equipment because just like the computer pad technology, changing settings can make it say what you want. Absolutely, and, and not just, not just the, um, the settings of the camera, but the whole image acquisition process has got to be clinical um, and the reality is is that I didn't want to get into this too much because it's kind of off subject but um, thermography has got to be treated as a veterinary tool mm -hmm. the same as any other diagnostic modality um, because you know for instance um, Jimenez et al um, talked about all the artifacts that you can get in radiography and he had six tables full of, art, of possible artifacts from radiography. Now, you think of radiography as an established modality that um, you couldn't really get wrong. But, you know, if you don't take the images correctly, you're getting completely false information. Absolutely. So Even recently, I know people that have had, uh, you know, they went for an x-ray and the person said, you're fine. And two days later, you know, they were having surgery. 
because somebody yeah. didn't read the x-ray properly. Yeah. Exactly. So it comes down, one, to image acquisition, but also um, all of my images are interpreted by specialist vets um, because you need to understand pathogenesis. You need to understand clinical relevance. Otherwise, you're going to throw out a load of red herrings as well. So, um, so thermography has to be done very succinctly, basically. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to go back to the screen share, and, and um, somebody's asking the question, um, when the metatarsals are not vertical, uh, they're indicate what were they possibly indicating? Uh, well, I'm going to talk, I'll touch on that a little bit in a, in a few slides time. Perfect. Actually. Great. Okay. okay, next. Next slide. Yep. Yeah, cool. Let me know when it's up. Yeah, it's up. So, all right. So, um, so this ideal that we were talking about is referring to when the horse is, is standing um, relaxed, which most horses do for most of the day. Now, the study into the relationships between hoof morphology and dynamic influences is much more widespread. But something that is far less researched is actually the influence of static posture on hoof morphology. Mm. So static posture will have an effect on the horse's movement, but also it could prove to have impulse effects on the hoof. So um, a friend of mine, Norman Johnson, did a great study on impulse. Um, keep trying to kick him in the bum to get it published. Um, looking at impulse dynamically. Now, impulse being force times time. Okay, So force over a certain amount of time. Now, I believe a lot of the, of the morphology we see in hooves is also actually down to static impulse or, or accumulative load from just standing still. Mm -hmm. uh, because studies have shown us that keratin structures suffer from elastic creep. So they, they you know, they, over time, they, they deform. Um, so this image is for illustration purposes. So this isn't what actually happened in this foot, but this is for image, uh, for illustration purposes. So you imagine the increased load in the heels from either static or dynamic influence. That force over time would cause the heels to collapse due to elastic creep. So there we can see how a change in posture could create accumulative loads on the hoof that, that affect its morphology. Next slide. So if we look at that more schematically, now obviously this is massively simplified in order to, to explain a point. Um, if we look at this more schematically, it's, it's like a table. So when the legs are completely vertical, this is when they're the strongest against gravity and supporting the weight above them. So the red lines through the legs, through the green legs, um, show how they're working in pure compression. If we look at the red legs, which could symbolize camped under or base narrow or angular limb deformities, we can see how we now have shear forces acting on those legs, indicated by the orange arrows, and we will inevitably have uneven loading of the bottom of the leg, i.e. the hoof. So this will have morphological effects on the hoof because the hoof is a deformable structure between the weight of the horse and the ground. And like we stated before, Simon Curtis and Mark Caldwell discussed how the hoof deforms according to the forces acting upon it. So in a really simplistic way, 
we can look at the hoof as the deformable box on the left. So the box is on the left. The green box, the green box is the square, is square to the leg and the ground and therefore it retains its shape. The red box has a high point. So the load through it is not central or perpendicular. Now, because the hoof is deformable, it will morph in order to create a level base. So we have the orange triangles showing the possible morphology that could occur. So it could either have a, create a flare, which is the bottom left-hand orange triangle, or it could shunt, which is the top left-hand corner, or there could be you know, a mixture of, of both or other stuff. So, um, so that shows you how the leg not being in a, in a vertical position in, in a table sense, can affect the, could affect the morphology of the box at the bottom. So, um, and then of course this works the other way. So if you have an unbalanced foot to your table leg, then the whole table is going to be unbalanced. Next slide. Great illustration. That really helps clarify because then you start thinking shear forces and vector forces, and then you start Absolutely. to realize you've yeah, got, exactly. yeah, you don't have a straight line. Yeah. Uh, so what we have are two types of cycles that happen. So uh, Mark Caldwell explains this fantastically in one of his lectures. Um, so I've, I've adapted it here and, and simplified it a little bit. Um, but if anyone can ever go and see that, I'll highly recommend it. Um, when you have ideal physiology, it creates ideal loads on the hoof, which leads to ideal morphology of that hoof. And in turn, we have an ideal load on the musculoskeletal system, and then we maintain ideal physiology. And then this cycle continues on and on. Now, if we have a negative influence on this cycle from different factors, confirmation being one of them, then a negative non-linear cycle can be created and it can become quite chaotic. The disordered physiology creates unbalanced forces, leading to negative morphology predisposing the animal to pathology that that can then exacerbate the cycle in a downward pattern. Next slide. So this cycle is very evident in negative planter angles, something that I'm looking into. You, you hopefully can see in these examples how the horses have a camp under posture associated with negative planter angles. Man's Man et al. 2010 associated negative planter angles with this posture. Um, whether the negative planter angles come first or the posture comes first, we don't actually know yet, but there is a clear cycle that goes on. So with no intervention, these will often get worse and worse. And a long story short, the posture, to hypothesize, creates increased load on the heels and crushing them from what we were talking about earlier. So this leads to a poor phalangeal alignment, often meaning the posture gets even worse as the horse brings the limb un further under the trunk to create a straight hoof past an axis. Um, now, breaking the cycle by intervening with Farry intervention, as you can see in some of these pictures, helps to also create a better posture, which leads to improved morphology, and then the cycle starts to work back the other way. So, so we have our really camped under horse on our top left. Yep. And then we've got our, our nearly ideal line between our point of our buttocks and our uh, metatarsal. metatarsal. 
Yeah. And that was in one shoeing. That was one for one. That was on the same day, that change. Wow. So. Wow, that's impressive. And that, that comes from establishing the ideal proportions of the digit. Um, so, but that okay. just shows you how interconnected everything is. Um, yep. You know, if, you, if you're thinking about, well, I'm going to touch on that a little bit more in a minute, so I won't say too much on that. Okay. Um, and then the, the top right pictures. So yes. we go from left to right there. Yep. And so this is our horse presenting before you've done anything with him. Yeah. And then the first shoeing, second shoeing, and then gradually working our way back out of the intervention that we did. And, and how long did this take, roughly? This took about eight months, I think, remembering rightly, about eight months. And then um, what, what did the owner see in terms of rideability? <laughs> well, so the horse on the left um, appeared sound. Um, but I kept on asking for it to be sent for investigation because of this posture that I couldn't ignore. Um, and it was found to have kissing spine, sacroiliac inflammation um, and proximal suspensory desmitis. Um, and so obviously after this, it, um, we did the Farry intervention. Now, if you look at the second to last one on the right, Oops. yeah, the second to last. There we go. Yep. The three degree dual ellipse. With, with the green light, with the green line. Yep. That was straight after, um, ligament snips surgery. So you can see how the Farry intervention got us so far and then but it wasn't until the ligament snip surgery that we actually managed to get a really an ideal confirmation uh, posture if you like sorry right because because you know we're questioning what's confirmation and what's posture here right, right. so um, it wasn't until the foot was in the right place and the higher pathology was treated that we then were able to get an ideal posture and then in terms of performance with this horse? Well, it's going through a rehab program, but it's obviously progressing through that rehab program quite nicely. Right. So, right. so they're seeing that. And my point being that, you know, it's not just showing the foot. You have to, the whole point of showing that foot better is to see that horse improve in its function. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And, and the posture and the, the, the reality is, is on the left, that horse was getting worse and worse and the cycle was perpetuating. Right. Uh, we had to break the cycle from both ends, um, you know, to, to really treat the horse properly. And this is, this is my point, is that we can't compartmentalize the two. So, um, but again, I'm going to go on to that a little bit more in a minute. So, Okay. Uh, are we leaving the lot lower pictures for now? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're essentially the same, showing the same progression. So they're, they're, they're not a lot to say to them. They're just the same, the same thing. All okay. Right. So next slide. I'm just going to check out some questions here. So what I was going to say to that, which we covered a little bit, is that um, talking about the Farrier intervention, but saying that we must be aware of, of it, what we must be aware of is what we mentioned in the previous slides, that the cycle is created by influences on that cycle. And we must ensure that we address those influences. 
so the cycle is broken. So the example we've used, negative plantar angles, has been linked to pathology all the way up the hind limb by the studies you can see in, in the image. And this is something that Martina and I discussed in our video cast. Um, again, which way round the causation of the cycle is between the hoof and the high pathologies is, is unknown and it's to be researched. But none, nonetheless, as we've seen from those previous slides, the cycle needs to be broken and shows us the close relationship between the hoof and the body. And like I said in the previous slides, the cycle may not be linear. Um, it could be quite chaotic and complex. So this expresses the importance of a team of professionals to work it all out. Uh, and, and again, this, you know, these I, I tend to, I like to use thermography, um, something which I think is, is actually the future of preventative care, done in a clinical way, obviously to assess the kinetic chain that we see here along the dorsal myofascial line to find all of the possible influences on the cycle. Well, and the, the thing is, the sooner we can recognize that there's a problem, the faster we can intervene to get things going back in a good direction. Exactly, and that change in posture can be a very early sign. Of that. Like you said, you know, we tend to start compensating way before um, we've got major issues. Right. So, so if we can recognize that posture from a very early stage, then like you say, we, we can hopefully intervene much earlier. Yeah, um, and I know Dr. Hillary Clayton, and I have never forgotten, um, I used to organize workshops, four-day workshops up at her place at MSU before the economic crash, but that's another story. But the thing that stuck with me is that she said that the first thing to go is suspension. And so when you have your dressage rider that says, my horse feels flat, that's yeah. a warning sign. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's, there, there's hopefully not a lot of pathology to find at that moment because it's just beginning. And the sooner yeah. we can not recognize these early signs and do something, the, the faster we're going to be back onto the road to recovery and function. And 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's, that's really the message that I'm, you know, that I'm trying to push here. So, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, are you on the next slide? Yep. Yep. Uh, so, again, referring back to the talk I did with Martina and the webinar that she actually did with yourself, um, you can see here that many of the myofascial lines go into the foot. So this shows us where cycles could possibly be created. Now, Martina spoke extensively on this subject, and I couldn't anywhere near match her knowledge on it. Um, so I'll just briefly relate it to this lecture. Um, but the principles of kinetic chains, myofascial lines, and biotensegrity mean that any anatomical point along these lines could affect every other. Um, and that, of course, includes having morphological effects on the hoof and vice versa. So going back to negative plantar angles, I mentioned you can see the blue line being the superficial dorsal line follows the pathologies that we saw in the previous slide associated with negative plantar angles and it goes all the way into the foot. So there, straight away, you can see why the studies have linked the two, because they're connected by the myofascial line. I, I think this is uh, one of the most fascinating slides that, that you have. And I, I've known about fascia, but I haven't known about fascial lines. And the more I learn about fascial lines and fascia, the more fascinated I become. Um, yeah. 
but the interrelatedness, once again, the interrelatedness of the whole body and that we can't ignore what's happening in one place and think it's in isolation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what's incredible is that there's, you know, I think, um, I can't, I apologize. I've forgotten her name, but there's a famous, um, lady who does the dissections who talked, talked about, um, the hyoid, she, I think in one of her dissections, she plays with the hyoid and it moves the hind foot or something like that. Um, it's, just, it's just incredible how everything's so interconnected. And, and, and this is something that I'm really becoming aware of and understanding that, um, you know, we have to, we can't um, ignore um, issues like poor, poor hoof imbalance because it, it's not just going to affect the hoof. It's going to affect the whole horse and of course vice versa so um this is where like if if farriers have normally got a good foot and they start to see morphological changes that's the time to to to, to say to the client um has this horse changed in any way is it is it is its movement changed is, is something going on because if if everyone can start to think in that preventative proactive way then you know like we were saying earlier we can start to recognize that things are going down the wrong road far quicker far earlier and hopefully we can do something about it right sharon may davis is the uh, that's the one yes my apologies put her name in thank you yeah. um and yeah i mean that's the thing is is the the more we can start to to recognize these subtle signs these little messages and not just write them off and whether that's you know from whatever aspect teeth feet back saddle rider nutrition health right that the foot is telling us a story the muscling is telling us a story the fascia is telling us a yes. story um and that's one of the reasons that i'm doing these webinars is for people to start realizing how multi-dimensional this system is and that any one entry point can actually hit so many other systems that it's it's always about finding well what is in my opinion i'm always looking for what's what's the most critical at this moment right because yeah. it if we can find the part that's the most critical like when i look at a rider i'm looking at a rider a saddle and a horse and i have to instantly decide is it the horse that i need to work with first the saddle or the rider because if i ignore the most critical i can't get anywhere with the rest of it yeah you yeah. know and also, you know, with the technology that we've got now, for instance, like, like thermography and like objective gait analysis, um, and with deeper understanding of the connectivity of everything, you know, why are we waiting for them to be broken? Exactly. You know, we don't need to be when we've got that kind of technology. Um, and again, sorry to keep pushing it. I don't, it's free. So it's, uh, um, but if you read my article on um, the unacceptable norms, and I talk about all of that in there, you know, we've, we've come to a, an era where we need to have a paradigm shift in the way that we think about horses in, into a much more proactive, preventative uh, management. Yep. And, and I think there's a number of reasons why we've gotten here. One is that um, horses are not our livelihood anymore for the majority of us. Mm. And so, you know, like when you think about a horse being a soldier's vehicle 
His yeah. life absolutely depended on that horse. And so, you know, he couldn't ignore certain things or he was going to be on foot and he would be, you know, he could be dead to be quite simple. Um, and so if they're your beast of burden and they're, and they're plowing your fields, you've, you've got to take care of them because that's your livelihood. And the further we've gotten away from that aspect, not that it was all perfect, I'm not saying that, but as we get away from the function of, of actual use into more pleasure, where you know we're we're not immersed in horses all day long we're busy sitting at our computers and things like that um you know lack of exercise is one of the number one things that's a problem right horses should be moving more people should be moving more i mean it's a common problem across the board um but the other thing to our advantage is that in this modern day we have the tools and technology to investigate things and to have better understanding and better diagnostics and get there quicker when we recognize a problem that they yeah. didn't have in the past. Absolutely. Also something else to consider in this equation is that um, horses have become more accessible. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's quite easy to, to get a horse these days, you know, um, but what people don't perhaps sometimes appreciate is that doesn't mean that they're cheap. <laughs> Um, and, they, and they certainly shouldn't be. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of the time, you know, some people might not like me for saying this, is that we spend money on, on things like a nice shiny bridle or a nice, nice new tack. Now, of course, tack's proven to be essential. Um, like all the studies by Mackenzie Guire um, talked about the importance of, of tack and how that affects biomechanics. But having said that, um, you know, if we can, we need to prioritize the money that we spend on our horses. And if we, if we need to put more priority into um, proactive assessment and monitoring of them um, to make sure that we keeping them in, in optimum health, because horses are genuine creatures. Um, so they will put up with so much. Um, and it'll, and it's, it's, it's usually way down the line before they tell us. But that's not fair. Um, so you know we need to be we need to be putting our money into those kind of monitoring systems um to to look after them better basically yeah no absolutely and that's one of the things um with surefoot pads that i think of them as magnifying glasses because when you put a horse on pads the imbalance in the foot is so much more obvious because the pad's going to give to the pressure um, or you can see how the muscling in the shoulder is different or one leg responds in a different way or the, you know, so it, it helps people see things. And when I do this with a rider on board, it breaks their habitual patterns of belief. I mean, so many riders go, oh, my horse, he's just difficult or my horse just, you know, he won't turn to the left. He's always, you know, making my life miserable. And then when they sit on the horse and they feel this horse move around and sway and change and then walk off and think about his foot and how it meets the ground, it changes their perception and they realize, wait a second, there's something going on. This pattern that I've tolerated, ignored and lived with actually may have a cause and that we need to look deeper. Yeah, um, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, and while, you know, it's, I, it's not a diagnostic tool unless it's in the hands of a veterinarian, um, it's a yeah. great um, conversation starter um yeah yeah help people start and I, and I think that's i think that's a real take-home message actually really is that you know 
in order to see, we have to look. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's about recognizing those little signs um, and then asking the questions. Um, you know, it's not, like you say, then there may not be diagnostic tools yet. You're not going to say this is because of this, but if you can start asking the questions then we can start getting the answers. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Feldenkrais, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Feldenkrais method, but Dr. Feldenkrais said, if you can ask the question, you already have the answer. Hmm. You know, and it's the ability to formulate that question as opposed to just thinking that somebody else is going to do it for you, that we have to be willing to start asking the questions. And then um, the caveat to that is I I believe that when we can ask a question, we, we always have the ability to find the answer that you know, especially in this day and age of technology, if we can ask the question, we can Google it, if nothing else, and at least get started on the path. As long as we, aren't, as long as we ask the question uh, genuinely and unbiasedly, otherwise we can make up our own answers, can't we? But, uh, Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> right, next slide. Oh, okay. Yeah. There we go. So, uh, just got a couple oh, of- did, did I screen share? Are we on screen share? Oh, no, you haven't screen shared, no. Okay, wait, I gotta get back to, uh, sorry, I blew that. Screen right. share, it was great for me. <laughs> <laughs> cool, yeah. Play from current slide, there we go. Okay, perfect. So, so yeah, now I've just got a couple of examples really of, of this poof body interactions. So another example of this relationship which shows how important it is for any body workers to consider the hoof is something that Kill Martin spoke about in a 2014 paper, which I'll read here. So looking at the sole of the hoof, the medial wall is higher than the lateral wall. In these cases, the transverse ascending and descending pectoral muscles are working along with the subscapularis and brachiocephalic to keep the forelimb under the body. These horses, again, consistently show pain or reactivity over the cartilage of the scapula. There is no pain or flinching at all after correct adjustment and permanent resolution with the levelling hoof trim. So, <laughs> there we go. Um, now, if you look at the, the two images that I, that I drew on the right, um, I've underlined the muscles that Kilmartin mentions. Um, so, you know, if people are having perpetual issues with, in this instance, these particular muscles, you've got to go and look at the feet and you've got to question whether, you know, the feet are causing this perpetual cycle. So, you know, for body workers, um, you know, and I'm not suggesting people that they tell the farrier um, that they're doing something wrong because we must remember that that hoof morphology has also been caused by an influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that influence could be um, confirmation fault or something. So we must remember that there's a cycle. So, you know, it's not about assigning blame. It's about working out the cycle and seeing what, what, what you can change. An injury. I mean, is something as simple exactly. as falling down in the field. Ah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. And, and, we don't know because it's not been studied, but possibly issues in these muscles could cause the morphology of the foot because you know they, these things work both ways. Um, but this just shows um, you know quite a clear link that was outlined by Kilmartin. Um, right. And then this, this image on the left is an example of one that I shod 
um, which clearly had a major lateral imbalance, as Kilmartin's talking about. And then by creating, you know, by the trim and by shoe placement, we changed the balance. And then, as Kilmartin suggests, that's going to have a positive effect on those particular muscles. Right. And pectoral muscles are really important in thoracic sling and lifting the withers. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, and, and obviously, considering the myofascial lines, mm. uh, you know, it might not stop there. You know, it right. could go further and further. So, next slide, please. I'm, I'm there. You're there? Yep. Oh, um, right. Okay. Are you not there? No, I'm not there yet. It's the one with the x-ray in the upper left, right? Straight hoof pastern axis? Yeah, yeah I've missed a slide. Uh-oh, hang on. Mm. No, it's not you, it's me, because I've, I've got an extra slide here. Oh, okay. I haven't sent to you. Shall I, can I share? Let's try it. I'll stop my share. Um, you go ahead and hit screen share, and let's see if it'll work. Uh, bear with me one minute. Yep, no oh. problem. I'm going to have a drink of water. <laughs> I've got to open it up. Okay. And, you know, it's, I think plasticity was the word that Monique used last night. We, we tend to think that things are the way they are, but there's, there's nothing really fixed. <laughs> um, and the, the uh, ability to change is so huge. And, it, and that whole question of posture versus confirmation starts to get bigger and bigger because we get used to seeing horses in a certain shape. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to work this out. Share screen. Yep, share screen. Then you're going to get little icons on your desktop. There you go. You pick the right, yep, there you go. Then I've got to go back through the, uh, sorry, sorry about this. Okay, it's a nice little review. <laughs> there we go, okay. So <laughs> this is the slide that I wanted to show. So, so um, another study that we can really see full body kinetic chains in action um, is Hobbs et al, uh, which looked at high-low hoof conformations. It found that uneven feet, so high-low hoof conformation, um, created uneven propulsive forces due to their different interactions with the ground. So to put it very simplistically, it's like having your brake half on on, on one side of your car. Um, so you're always going to want to pull to one side, right? Mm -hmm. So horse needs to use spinal stiffening and hind limb compensations to maintain a straight line. So, so you've got a problem in the front foot and the spine has to stiff and the, and the hind limbs need to compensate. So you've got a full body kinetic chain there. Um, and so these horses are going to be prone to musculoskeletal issues and they're going to need probably um, seeing more often by a chiropractor or physio or, or whatever. So, um, now, Ridgeway stated this in a paper um, that the horse has to twist its, its head and neck to keep the eyes level, and horses therefore often exhibit muscle pain, stiffness, and spasm in the base of the neck. So, moreover, because of dural torque, the tube in which the spinal cord is suspended and anchored, vertebral dysfunction and, and fixation occurs at the base of the neck. This then accounts for the muscle tension and pain around the sixth and seventh cervical vertebrae, 
It also causes dural torque twisting at the level of the pole and at the lumbosacral connection. Chiropractic issues are therefore common at all three levels as a result of high, high low heel. So that's uh, um, from uh, Ridgeway. So, yeah. so you can really see, um, you know, the connection between the hoof and the whole body and, and how it's all going to affect each other. So I thought that was, you know, you've got, you've got high-low hooves, you've got issues in your neck, you've got issues in your back, you've got potential issues all the way down the hind limb. You're going to have um, asymmetrical um, forces acting on the hoof, on the back hooves as well. So, so very often you have um, a matching imbalance in the hind hooves. So there you go. It's like a full-body kinetic chain there. And, and so, you know, it's really pushing the message that, um, you know, if you've got issues in the spine or issues in your neck or, you know, anywhere in between, you know, we've got to be considering the base of the horse. Wow. That's a very cool study. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've extrapolated a lot from that, I have to admit. Yeah, that's okay. That's, uh, yeah. I mean, it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. Uh, so I'm still sharing, aren't I? Yes. Would you want to? Yeah, because your audio got uh, worse. Yeah, that's that's the problem that I have when I share. So that's why I'm going to. But that stop. was well worth doing that for that slide. Yeah, good. Okay. So oh, we'll hang on. Over here, there we go. All right, I'm there back up again now with the one with the X-ray on the left-hand side. I've got to get my. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I'll just check and see if there's any questions. Right, there we go. Okay, I'm back on. Oh, so someone's asking if there's typical causes for the high-low hooves. Uh, so I've, I've, I wrote an article on high-low hoof confirmation. Um, so please feel free to, to read that. Um, a few of them off the top of my head. It's very common in X-race horses um, because um, of possibly because of one ray training around the track. So they end up, they very often have um, one metacarpal longer than the other. So it could be actual limb length disparity. Um, and also Van Heel did some studies on, um, on youngsters. So when they're, when they're feeding, they, they, they prefer one foot. So, you know, that, um, so, and it could be injury, but if you read, if you read that article, I, I go into it in some depth. Great. So are we on the next slide now? Yep. Okay. Um, so the farrier's role in breaking this cycle is to aim to create a base that is as ideal for supporting the gravitational load lines and everything that above it as possible. And as we've seen, this will very often have a very profound effect on the position of the table leg, if you like. Um, and the two pics on the right show some of my interventions to create a better base under the horse. And we saw the one on the bottom right earlier. Uh, the shoeing job in the left lateral radiograph was done by a friend of mine, Dorin Madden, very nice job indeed. Um, and it shows Farry intervention to create ideal proportions of the digit which in my experience is what helps to create the ideal posture of the horse. So, 
next slide, please. Okay, it's up at my end. Yeah, so to conclude, in very much the same way as my talk with Martina did, um, everything that we do to the musculoskeletal or neurological systems, whether that's be through short foot pads or otherwise, will directly affect the morphology of the hoof and also vice versa. Um, so when dealing with musculoskeletal issues, the hoof has got to be considered and the hoof affects everything and everything affects the hoof. So that's my talk. Yeah, awesome. All right, I'm going to stop the screen share for a second. You know, I, I mean, for me, it always goes back to what is making contact with the ground? It's the foot. It's the base exactly, of the building. Yeah. And you've got to make sure that that, it doesn't matter as my, I can't remember who said it. It doesn't matter what the leg does through the air. It matters what happens when the foot hits the ground. If it's not hitting the ground in a solid, secure way, you know, with a good landing, if it's hitting toe first or laterally really heavily, it's going to throw the entire system off. Just like if we were trying to run on the outside of our feet. I mean, yeah, having said that, the, um, you know, Martina talks a bit about um, the swing phase and, and stuff like that. And obviously the movement also, also has, has major impacts as well. But, but yeah, to a certain extent, um, you know, how the, that foot hits the ground, because at the end of the day, um, you know, like we said, the hoof is, is the point of contact with the ground and it's, it's deformable structure in between, in between the weight of the horse. And, and, um, and the horse initiates movement by pushing off of that structure. So, um, so everything comes, comes from there. Yeah, so uh, someone's asked a question. Um, this is a very basic concept of bringing a Campton horse posture straight. Uh, is it a concept to raise the heels in the hind hooves to bring that Campton posture straight? Um, um, without going into the whole protocol, um, it's, it's not as simple as that. It's not just about raising the heels. It's about creating proportions and balance, um, the adequate amount of the length. I found that length of the shoe um, plays, plays a huge role in the position of the limb as well. Um, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's another whole, another whole subject. Um, but um, but it, it really, for me, it's about, like I said before, it's about creating the ideal proportions and the ideal. So, you know, to go back to kinetic chains, the position and orientation, I think this is from a Levin study, the position and orientation of every anatomical point affects every other anatomical point. So if the hoof is orientated, um, in its optimal position, it's going to have an optimal effect on the rest of the myofascial line and the rest of the kinetic chain. So it's about creating optimals of, of the hoof in proportions. Yeah. And, then, and then there's always the ideal and then reality. And uh, yeah. <laughs> reality always gets in the way, doesn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, but we need to be careful not to, um, not to throw away things that we can have an effect on because they are reality. Um, so we need to understand what parameters we can affect, what parameters we can't affect, um, and be careful not to accept unacceptable norms. Yeah. 
it's such a it's such a dance uh, of of constantly learning and evolving and i think for me one of the things that's so important is i may not have known something before and i've made it you know and i've caused a problem but as i gain information it's my responsibility to use that information to make wise choices and it's when i don't use that information that i abdicate my responsibility to my horse yeah well what what i've really enjoyed from creating the equine documentalist is i get messages nearly every day of people telling me um, oh, I took photos of my horse and drew lines on it today. Now, they may be doing it completely wrong, <laughs> but the fact is people are looking, and that's what I'm trying to encourage. And, and you know, because at the end of the day, um, the buck does end up stopping with the owner yeah. because they need to ask the right questions um, and they need to demand the right treatments. So, um, you know, that's why you know, my page is kind of focused on the owner and on the, the other kind of practitioners because um, so they can ask those questions because, you know, if, if the questions get asked, we'll get somewhere. If they don't get asked, if they get ignored, then everything perpetuates. Right, right, absolutely. Well, this has been another fascinating webinar and, and um, I've really enjoyed this one, Yogi, because for one, it's a little slower pace than some of the others I've had recently. <laughs> um, so I can kind of sit back and take in the information and, and um, uh, just in a little easier way. It's really great. Well, that's, that's kind of what I try to do because I, I appreciate that, um, you know, I, I teach, you know, I, I've got lots of experience teaching kids and I kind of bring that into it. And, and the reality is, is I want people to actually learn something. So, you know, if you're going to, there's no point in sounding really smart and really clever if, if it's going over people's heads. Um, so that's, that's kind of the purpose of the equine documentalist is trying to make things palatable. Um, so it actually, you know, gets, gets used. Yeah, no, it's been great. It's been uh, really, really fun. And I'm, I'm really glad that we've had this uh, webinar because we've, we've chatted a little bit. I think we had a Skype call once and you know, back and forth on Facebook, but um, it's a pleasure to listen to you and to look at the research you. and, and, um, and see the, the thought that's going in behind it and the, the, the intention. I really, I, I want to thank you very much for being one thank of my you. And Well, I'm, thank you again for having me. Um, it's, been, it's been lovely. It's been really I've enjoyable. I've been calling you again. You never know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. You know, might be in a little while, but um, I'm going to keep the webinars going. I have, I'm pretty much going to go through June and then I'm supposed to go back to my day job of teaching writing in July. That's the plan at this point. Um, yeah. I do want to keep these webinars going because they're, it's a great way for people to go to one-stop shop to learn about a lot of different things. And so, um, yeah, so no, I think it's brilliant. And I've been enjoying them. Well, so thank you once again for joining us. This has been just a really interesting educational experience with Yogi. And remember that you can find all of the webinars on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. If you're interested in learning more about Surefoot, our website is now open. It's surefootequine.com. You can go to Fans of Surefoot and ask questions. We have a great group of people out there that are willing to help and the Surefoot Equine Facebook page. Um, thank you again for joining us. And tomorrow, it's just me for the Surefoot uh, talk. I'm, I'm still working on what my topic's gonna be, so stay tuned, I'll see you tomorrow. And thanks again, and thanks, Yogi. Bye. Bye.